everyone, and welcome to another episode of the No Low Ballers podcast. I'm Logan Medish of High Caliber History, your host. We're here in Rogers, Arkansas at the Daisy Air Gun Factory, sitting around the table, as always, with guys from Go Wild and Gun Broker, and we've got Joe from the Daisy Museum. And this week, we are talking uh, air gun history in general, uh, because there is a lot of history for air guns. They go back a lot further than people think they do, uh, and they have a lot more varied usage than people tend to think they did. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we've, we've got air guns in the 17th and 18th centuries uh, um, is, is really when we really start to see the technology kind of take hold, right? Right. Yes, sir. And one of the most iconic uses of an air gun in the United States is on the Lewis and Clark expedition. And that's not something you necessarily think. You're like, why, why would they take, you know, a little kid's I mean, BB gun? But that's so not what they took with them, right? You're Alan? going out of the uncharted wilderness. You don't know what you're going to run into. You don't know who you're going to run into. I mean, if I'm planning that trip, I'm packing that air's equivalent of an AK-47 and a few dozen <laughs> cases. But therein lies the rub. You're packing a few cases of ammunition mm-hmm. and powder and everything. And it's heavy, especially in that, that area of firearm. You know, it's going to be muzzle loaders. So you're packing the shot, the wadding, the powder all the tools that go with it. Bunch of flints. Exactly. With an air gun, you need the pellet. That's about it. Probably a toolkit to maintain it. But it, it actually would make a ton of sense for an expedition like Lewis and Clark. So Right. Same lead ball, but no flash and no report. Right. So yeah. those were the advantages. And, and, then, and Joe, you know a little bit about the actual specific air guns. I saw some of that in the museum when we were there. We're fortunate to uh, have a collection of antique air guns that go back. I mean, I, the first thing I tell people when they walk in the museum is air guns are a lot older than Daisy. Mm-hmm. There were air guns in China in the late 1500s, in Nuremberg, Germany, in Austria. And there were kind of two different schools of air guns. There were what were called parlor guns, which were fun shooting indoors. And then there were these large caliber big game guns that were right. also used by military and uh, and uh, police. And, and as a matter of fact, in a lot of countries back then, the only people who could own an air gun because they were considered stealthy. They were considered sniper rifles. They didn't make a bang and they didn't make a flash. So mm-hmm. you didn't know where the shot's coming from. So they forbid the general public from owning them. It was mostly military, police, and and Wealthy people, politicians, mm-hmm. I guess you well, would say something that like era, that. No big cloud of smoke either. No big cloud right. of smoke. No flash. No nothing like that. Yeah. So uh, they they had that attractiveness to them in our collection. We have an early CO2 pistol. Okay. We yeah. have uh, one uh, early gun made in New Jersey back in the 1880s, mm-hmm. but beyond that, going back to 1670, we have uh, air guns that look like canes. So it's a walking cane, but Very it's also cool. a precharged pneumatic gun. And today that would be the equivalent to your audience would be these are precharged pneumatic guns. Mm-hmm. They had a bellows in the stock. They had a canister usually. The stock would be detachable. Mm-hmm. It would unscrew. It was cast iron, so it would hold a lot of pressure that you would put into it with a hand pump. Um, Lewis and Clark stated, or someone has stated about Lewis and Clark's gun, that you would have to pump it 1,500 times. Mm, that's correct. Yep. Then you could get about 30 shots out of it, 
and you could reach out 100 yards with that ball. Well, wasn't it something like 1,000 feet per second muzzle About velocity? Feet per second. And they, yeah. were, they carried multiple because the buttstock for that gun yes. was, was the, 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 canister. Chart, the canister. The canister, yeah. And so, yeah, the, you'd yeah. carry multiple buttstocks with you, multiple canisters. You sit around the fire and everybody take turns, pump till your arms get tired, <laughs> pass it to the next guy and pump them back up. Um, but that's, you know, th- those guns, that gun in particular with Lewis and Clark, you know, that Girondoni style gun, they're using it for defensive purposes and they're also using it for hunting purposes and you know and and air guns today have have become really popular in the hunting community you know um and i think people tend to think that that's a brand new thing and that's so not the case Mm -hmm. the the idea of hunting with a large caliber air rifle goes back a couple hundred years well you know and i'll turn to the two museum guys but wasn't aren't air guns at least in that era also a very popular choice for museums to collect specimens because of the basically lower damage to the specimen it would uh, result as opposed to a, a, a you know real gun I, I don't understand your question like having powder in the barrel so would deteriorate the steel well no no i'm uh, if you're a curator and you need to go out and get a sample of the western whippoorwill you're mm-hmm. going to shoot it with a bb gun and not a 22 Oh, I see oh, what you're saying. Oh, I, I, yeah, I, I understood it the complete other way Sorry, around. Yeah, you're done. <laughs> right, right, Use right. Use the whippoorwill. No. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, that would make sense. You know, yeah, you're wanting to, yeah. to damage the, se- the specimen, you know, make, make the taxidermist's I, job a little easier, I'm right? Just, I'm trying to forget. There, there was, uh, I was just reading something a, a few months ago. It was one of the, the large museums, and it was in the 1900s. The curator went out to, because he needed to work on their ornithology collection, and it was an air rifle he was using to collect specimens. Okay. Yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, you know, uh, definitely way more yeah. than blowing something apart with <laughs> with a powder burner, right? <laughs> Lewis and Clark, the, the things we know about their air rifle are really limited to what they wrote in their journal, I That's suppose. That's correct. And there's about 39 entries in there where they talk about the gun. And yep. they, they say that they encountered some rather hostile people. Mm-hmm. And when they did, they were unsure of how the relationship was going to go. And they would show them the keel boat, and they would show them one of these air guns, which was the one they had. And, but the implication was, we've got a whole boatload of these. Right. And uh, it was Meriwether Lewis who was going to, um, oh gosh, I think he was going to Pittsburgh. He bought the gun in Philadelphia. But he was going to Pittsburgh to, to see the keel boat right before it was going to be delivered for the expedition. And that was like May or June 1903. And he stops and he buys this gun at a distributor show. And it was a Girondoni. Um, I think the NRA Museum has a a cousin to that gun that was bought from the same distributor. They've got uh, two, uh, two of those. Um, and we we think that we know where the actual air gun that they used is at. Um, and the actual one that was on the expedition, we believe, is at the uh, National Museum of the United States Army in Fort Belvoir, Virginia. And the reason we think we know that gun is because in their journal, in the diary entries, uh, they, they note that the mainspring broke oh, on the gun. Great. And they had to make a replacement mainspring out of a farrier's rasp, out of a file. Wow. And they've, so mm. the, the two that are at the NRA Museum and those in that collection, those have been apart because we're like, oh, let's look at the mainspring, you know, let's see, you know, mm. and nope, not made of a farrier's rasp. Um, but the one that's in the collection uh, of the Army Museum, it does have a repaired mainspring in it. 
and it does appear that it was made from a file or a rasp. And so will we ever know with 100% certainty? No, we will never know with 100% certainty, but we're pretty darn sure that, you know, of the existing ones that, that date to that time period, that's very likely a great candidate for being the one that they actually had on the expedition. I, I have a question of you. Yes, sir. When you retire, will you come work at the Daisy Museum <laughs> and talk about this history? Well, you know, th- th- that's interesting. You say when I retire, I would actually have to work for a living in order to retire. Oh. And, and I don't ever plan on working for a living, oh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't ever plan on being able to pay you. So there. Oh, well, it's there a you good, go. It's a yeah. good perfect fit. Match it's a perfect match made in heaven. Yeah. Like Alan yeah. said, we'll work right up until uh, right up until lunch time on the day I die, right? You know? <laughs> I guess one of the most important features of the gun, though, is how the Native Americans perceived it and yes. called it the fireless stick, and we're a little standoffish because of that. It's kind of like... They demonstrated it for it's them. It's kind of like some voodoo magic, you know? I mean, uh, they're, they time. are used to seeing something that makes a lot of noise, has a lot right. of, you know, smoke right. and fire, and now you've got this thing that repeats fire uh, or, or repeatedly fires, and there's no smoke, and yeah, it's scary stuff. Lewis you know. and Clark wrote well and wrote very descriptively about what they saw and what they encountered. We have a portion of that blown up on a big sign in our museum, and inevitably once a month somebody comes up and says, I think you have a typo here, because they, they didn't spell very well. Oh, they yeah, they yeah. spelled kind of a combination Old English, New English. Yeah. But, um, yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. And there's there's a huge history, you know, Lewis and Clark, that's almost kind of a, you know, we're talking kind of quasi-military in a sense right. with, with that a air gun. And, and so that lends us an easy transition into talking about uh, the impact of air guns and air gun companies for training purposes with the United States military. So, Joe, if you can talk to us a little bit about some of that history. Uh, yes, I, I, Daisy's had military contracts or, or federal government contracts throughout its history. Mm-hmm. They had them during World War II. Uh, they had them during the Vietnam War era. Um, even today, they make a drill rifle for all the service divisions for junior ROTC training dr- with drill rifles. And so that that's nothing unusual about that. And, you know, when we went through COVID and our president ordered Ford to make respirators. I thought, wow, you know, this has happened before in World War II. <laughs> right. All these companies had to make things that, w- that we as a country needed. Mm-hmm. And they, they did so very patriotically, as Ford did this time. But um, certainly during the Vietnam War era, Daisy made uh, shot for bomblets that would explode over the ground and defoliage the, the ground, the area. Okay. Uh, uh, and w- so a helicopter could land there. But there were anti-personnel also. Mm-hmm. And uh, those those BBs were really, and there's confusion over BBs and ball bearings. BB just was is a size of shot. That's mm-hmm. how it started. But people think it means ball bearings. Well, if you polish a BB well enough or anything well enough, it becomes perfectly round and then it qualifies to be a ball bearing. And Daisy made BBs of ball bearing quality during Vietnam War era. And it wasn't so much that why does shrapnel have to be perfectly round. It was more important that the way it loaded through a cone-shaped loader Uh. into the bomblet, it would get gummed up unless they were perfectly round. I never thought about that, yeah. And then the other thing that Daisy did, now this had been pioneered by a guy named Lucky McDaniel. He was uh, an Olympic shooter. 
and then he was instructor for the U.S. Army, and he taught instinct shooting. And there are several courses around the country today where you can go learn to shoot instinctively with a BB gun with no sights on it. Mm-hmm. You're basically staring at a target or you're watching an aerial target, and you are cocking, mounting, and shooting the gun, and you never take your eye off the point that you want that BB to hit that target. And it works. I've taken the course, and it works. And the Army got interested in this. They were, for the first time in the Vietnam War, uh, drafting guys who had perhaps never shot a gun. Mm-hmm. I mean, my dad was in World War II, but he had hunted for food. If he didn't, his family wouldn't have eaten. Right. He knew how to lead a rabbit. Mm-hmm. But Vietnam War, they're drafting guys who maybe never shot a gun before. So sure. they're handing them BB guns first, and they're teaching them guerrilla warfare, how to mount the gun, point it, and shoot it, where your finger or you're lining up, you're not lining up sights, right. you're directing the shot, and you know where that BB's going to go mm-hmm. because you can watch the BB. Right. The good news is you can see it. Out of, out of a low-velocity <laughs> daisy BB gun, you can see it. And so mm-hmm. you're, you're more or less willing the BB gun to shoot in the same spot every time. And if you, if you ever try this, it will work, and you'll be amazed. You will shoot the black dot in the middle of the white box, and you'll shoot it 30 times, and the BB will go through the same hole your brain automatically tells you, you can't do that. That's not right. <laughs> and then you'll start shooting a two-inch group again for a while. Right. But as long as you know that what you're doing and you're just watching the target and you know where that gun mounts, you know how it feels, you know how it feels against your cheek. Sorry, mm-hmm. I hit the microphone. <laughs> and, uh, and you do it the same way every time. And if yeah. you do it the same way every time, you get the same results every time. So that was called the Quick Kill Program. And there okay. are Quick Kill guns that were basically Daisy Model 99 BB guns and 95 Model BB guns that had the, strip, uh, had the sights stripped up. Well, they were made with no sights, sold mm-hmm. to the Army that way. Most of them were stamped on the stock or stamped on the receiver, U.S. government property, U.S. Army property. Sometimes the base uh, name is on the gun. Okay. Um, it's pretty easy to tell. And then, of course, we know the era in which they're made. And if you give us a lot number, again, we can verify that it's possibly a quick-kill gun. Mm-hmm. Then they transitioned from that into a model that, that the Army made to look like an M16. That's really neat. So you're going from BB gun to BB gun that looks like your service weapon to shooting your service weapon. Mm-hmm. All of it, you're being taught the same way instinctively shoot, acquire the target that way, do not line up the sights. Right. And it, and it works. That's really neat. And that is is a, a perfect segue into, you know, marksmanship and learning marksmanship and, and what air guns have done and continue to do for the field of marksmanship and training and competitions because um, there is a huge world of air gun competition. Um, can you talk to us a little bit about Uh, Sure. About that aspect of things. Well, Daisy likes to say everybody's first gun was a Daisy. And and in general, that's true. And that's part of the reason. (laughs) Sorry, Dan. Sorry, Dan. Sorry, Dan. (laughs) His first cork gun was a Daisy. (laughs) Anyway, Anyway, uh, everybody's first gun was a Daisy. And and that would include people today who are great marksmen or great hunters or have podcasts about hunting. You know, they'll they'll tell you my first gun was a Daisy. Yeah. And we're we're very proud of that, and we take that very seriously, and that's what makes it a multi-generational, super-brand type of company. And um, where am I going with this? I got off track. <laughs> that'll that'll tell you. Yeah. Tell yeah, we're, people, we're talking about Mark's viewers that this is live. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, obviously, one of the things you can learn is marksmanship training with a BB gun, and you'll find Olympic shooters who will say, 
my first gun was a Model 25. Mm-hmm. And, and again, that's a very important thing for us. But the things that you learn, such as how to mount the gun to your shoulder, uh, trigger squeeze, breath control, proper positions, bracing yourself in a standing position, uh, sight ac- target acquisition, sight lining up, you know, all these things are, are things that will serve you well the rest of your life. Well, as we mentioned, the four rules apply to this just as much as it does a center. Oh, point. yeah. Don't, you know, don't point the gun at anything you don't want to shoot. Or some people say keep it pointed in the safe direction. Mm-hmm. That that'll, that will prevent you know, 99 to 100% of all accidents or incidents with, with firearms in the future. But Daisy understood that, and they knew that teaching kids early uh, to shoot with a gun and to do it safely was important. Mm-hmm. In 1948, they went to the Detroit public schools. Again, they were in Plymouth, Plymouth is a suburb of Detroit. Yep, not far at all. And they started teaching marksmanship. <coughs> Excuse me. And uh, later that summer, that was in 1948, that summer they approached a, uh, an athletic coach at a high school. His name was David Gates. And they asked David, they said, you know, we know how to teach kids how to shoot, but we've never written it down. We don't know what lesson one is, lesson two, when mm. do you introduce this? Would you, if we came and did this to you, would you organize it? And he says, well, yeah, I don't work during the summer, so I'll do it during the summer. And he did it one summer, and he never went back to teaching. He stayed with Daisy. Oh, wow. He moved down here. He was on our school board in Rogers, Arkansas. The local football stadium is named after him. He, wow. w- he was very involved wow. with kids and education, and not all air guns, but a lot of air guns. Mm-hmm. And he was very important in getting a program started with um, the USJCs. And uh, they, together with Daisy, they they put together teams across the country to compete in a national BB gun championship match. That's really cool. And, and we had talked a little bit before, uh, <coughs> before we had come on camera, we were talking about that, that match um, and how that match has grown so exponentially over the years. And it has gotten to the point where it is, uh, I can think of no way to, to describe it other than gigantic. It is th- the biggest event of its kind, right? It is. And, and uh, teams that are invited to come to the Daisy Nationals, uh, they have to have come in first, second, or third in a state-sanctioned, an NRA-sanctioned match or a 4-H-sanctioned match. They have to abide by the NRA rules of 5-meter air gun competition. And if they qualify, then they can apply to come here. And every year, there's maybe 60, 65 teams uh, come. Uh, There's seven people on a team. Five scores count. Two are considered alternates. The alternates can come back next year and shoot. Mm -hmm. But And and I've been to a lot of sporting events. I'm a 70-year-old guy. I've been to a lot of baseball games and everything else, dancing competitions, you name it. But I would put those kids up against any. They are so well disciplined because mm-hmm. of what the sport is, mm-hmm. how it works. You can't goof off. You can't swim in the pool. You can't get chlorine in your eyes. Uh, it's yes, sir, no, sir. They and their coaches are, are like a family. Mm-hmm. And families come with these kids. They don't come from Oregon and New York and Virginia and Georgia to this competition in Rogers, Arkansas every year by themselves. They bring mom and dad. They bring siblings. They bring grandparents. We typically have about 2,000 to 2,100 people at the opening ceremonies. 
which is a huge room. And they wear their team colors, and they march in, and they carry their team flag, and they'll dress up with a theme, and they'll compete with each other on that basis. And then, of course, there's winning winning teams for second and third. There's winning individuals. There's Mm -hmm. the best of the match. And then there are winners in different positions. They shoot in three positions, so Mm -hmm. there are four positions. They shoot in uh, standing, sitting, kneeling, and prone. Okay. And so they they compete for the best score in each position, too. So Wow. It's a great event. That is. And what time of year do they hold that? It's usually right after July 4th weekend, right around July 4th weekend. Okay. Everybody has July 4th off. It's a good time to travel or to travel back home, so... The company tries to schedule it around that time frame. Yeah. Now, there's, there's obviously, we're talking air guns, and, and that's what Daisy is as a company in history. But um, we, we have to go a little off topic. A little. Um, just because I, we would be remiss not to cover this. I hope you're going to cover what I'm thinking you're going to cover. This is a family show, Dan. We can't not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, we, we have to talk about the one and only actual legal firearm that daisy made the vl um and so let's let's talk a little bit about yeah. the time that daisy made a real gun well <laughs> i was gonna say and and that that requires some debate too as you and i were talking about is it a firearm is it a, is right. it an air gun right and, and that's kind of why it doesn't exist anymore today yeah um a gentleman by the name of Jules Van Langenhofen approached Daisy with a liquid in a little bottle and some cotton and a pellet and a pellet rifle and said, if you drip this liquid onto this cotton, put it in behind the pellet, cock the gun, the heat that's generated, not only the pressure will expo- expel the pellet, but the heat generated will ignite this cotton and it'll shoot at about the velocity of 22. Mm-hmm. And therefore, he has now invented what's called caseless ammunition. No brass casing, but a 22 caliber bullet going down the barrel. And that's what the arms industry has been chasing for I was, centuries. I was going to say, I was under the impression that caseless ammunition is was yesterday, just, just yesterday. Right, yeah. yeah. So so Daisy makes this gun. They call it the VL after the inventor, Jules Van Langenhofen, which no one could pronounce anyway. Yeah, th- so I, it's can, the I can VL barely gun. pronounce VL, yeah. And the guns are very collectible today. Yeah. And uh, the ammunition is even more scarcer than hen's teeth. Uh, they came in a little straw, and the straw was in a package, and the package was in a brick. And today it's hard to find a straw or any ammunition. But the guns are out there. Yeah. And they come up at auction once in a while, I understand. Mm-hmm. And then the ammunition is very, very hard to find. It is, yeah. And I, we were talking when we were going through the museum. I've, I've got, a, I'm lucky enough to have a tube of the ammo. And we had mentioned that, you know, of course, the, the ammo itself is very interesting and, and very specialized. But the, the propellant, you know, the little cotton on the back would snap off of the ammo. So you have to store it a certain way. And so the, the little straw-like tube is actually a patented item uh you know it's it's things that you don't necessarily think about when it comes to product development that that you you need to have uh have it right otherwise someone's gonna open up the box ammo and all all the propellants broke off the back of it it's fragile and it's also susceptible to humidity changes and moisture and things like that so very odd product but it led daisy into making 22s they made a little right Black 22, and then they made a line of legacies, which were beautiful walnut with octagon barrels. And uh, mm-hmm. 
probably ended up overpriced, but they're they're very collectible today. Sure. And speaking of stuff that's collectible and, and the VL, Alan, can what can we find segue. those? <laughs> the perfect yeah. segue. You know, we should. It's almost like I should host this show or something. <laughs> you know. I, yeah. You know, we looked over the VLs in the museum, uh, heard the story. Uh, I hopped on Gunbroker, took, took a quick look, and there's actually one on there right now. Today. Okay. Yep. Going on. Wow. It, the auction is there. Um, Sitting at about 125 right now, which you actually said is probably a hair underpriced. I think it's underpriced so far, but mm. who knows what the high bid I will be. I know what I'll be doing sitting in the airport <laughs> this afternoon on my phone looking. Uh, you well, know. you've got the ammo. I've so. got the ammo. I don't have a gun. So, you know, i gotta got to put it all together with that, you know. <laughs> so, but it's, uh, it's interesting that, you know, that gun is so short-lived in Daisy's history. And it, give us a brief... Why is that gun so short-lived? To the best of my knowledge, at that time, they, the company didn't hire, uh, hold the firearms production license. And so uh, they were marketing this uh, as it was an air gun, and mm-hmm. essentially it is, right? I mean, there, but there was an explosion in the chamber, and there was just a lot of questions about And the questions came, and, and respectfully, I'll, I'll say that came from uh, retailers who just said, should we be selling this? Yeah. And yeah, that's so interesting, because that's not how I expected that to go i wouldn't have expected the retailers to be the ones who are going oh pump the brakes like i thought for sure it would be you know some fat cat in washington going hmm did they pay us for an ffl you know (laughs) you know it's it's weird probably a little bit of both right as a community sometimes we're our own worst enemy yes Yes. and the pistol stabilizing brace got to where it's at today because people would not stop badgering the atf going is it really legal I mean, I, I own 20 of them, but is it really legal? Right. And they just wouldn't stop it. So the point the ATF kind of went, all right, fine. You know what? Let's take another look at this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and the timing when this came out, too. It was post-JFA assassination, Bobby Kennedy. And, sure. And uh, we just you know, guns had gun a, lot of, act. A, lot of, a lot of focus on them at the time, too. So yeah. That probably contributed. For sure. Well, it's been great sitting around, and, and we've been talking air gun history. And, uh, you know, as, as we're wrapping up our second segment here with you, Joe, is, is there anything that we haven't covered that, that we need to cover with you? I, w- I want to make sure we— I'll ask a specific question. Okay. T- tell us about the, mu- the museum and what people can do to learn more about the museum. Okay. Uh, DaisyMuseum.com is our website. That's an easy we, one. We talked once about, uh, or at least we talked in person, about this idea that if you have an old BB gun, if it has a register number on top of the frame or a lot number under the edge of the barrel, there's a form on our website, Air Gun Evaluation. Give us as much information as you can. Sometimes more is better. Mm-hmm. Always more is better. We may not need all of it. We can sometimes tell you the day your gun was made. Wow. Sometimes it's the month of year. Sometimes it's an older gun like your father-in-law's gun here. We have to go with uh, features of the gun and combination of the features and get it down to about a five-year period. But uh, a lot of people want to know when their old gun was made and, and what their old gun is worth. And right. we can quote that to them, too. And but you've got... Editions of of Daisy guns that you cannot buy in retail shops, only from the museum. That's right. The museum has a lot of exclusive guns. Right now, we have a 50th anniversary of the 880, the multi-pump pneumatic. We're running out of very soon a tribute to that first BB gun that was given, Red Rider, that was given to Fred Harmon in, mm-hmm. on April 2nd, 1940. We know that because Fred scratched it with a nail <laughs> into the metal of the gun. Bless his heart. And uh, so we sell limited edition guns like that. We also have a Second Amendment gun. There you go. We have a Pledge of Allegiance gun. We have a fire and a police department gun. And we have state guns. So if you have a 
grandfather in Virginia and you want to see the state of Virginia shape on the stock with Virginia and the year it entered into the union and its motto, and then we can put your grandfather's name on the forearm. We love doing things like that for families and creating heirlooms for the future. and things, Christmas gifts. Things a good way to hand down the, the legend. Yeah. Perfect Christmas gifts is what I'm hearing for this time of year, you know? That's right. That's <laughs> right. Better start thinking early. That's right. All right. Well, thank you guys for sitting around the table again. Thank you, Joe, for joining us. Thank you to everyone who's watching and listening to the show. Make sure you're subscribed on your favorite platform. Leave us some comments and reviews, likes. Let us know what your first air gun was. We'd love to hear about it. And we will see you right here next week on the next episode of the No Low Ballers podcast. We'll